This is Michael Ostrelink, and this is Try Loves on the Edge with Dr. Stuart Zavatsky, author of Advanced Spiritual Intimacy, The Yoga of Deep Tantric Sexuality, and Tina Benson, The Soul Whisperer, and author of A Woman Onto Herself, A Different Kind of Love Story. How are you guys doing today? Wonderful, Michael. Yes, thank you so much for inviting us, Michael. It's lovely to be with you again. It's uh, great to have you both on. We are titling at least today's conversation, Transpersonal Psychology, Embodied Love, and Creating a Culture of Connection. And what we decided to do is just start asking each other questions and just see where the conversation takes us. So I think as the host, to the host prerogative, and I'm going to ask Dr. Savatsky the first question, and I'm going to put it in context. So, Stuart, I have a basic idea. Uh, formula that I've been playing around with in my head in terms of human development, that we go from dependent, from, you know, in utero to the mother, out of, out of the womb, dependent on caregivers, whether it's mother or father or other types of caregivers. And then over time, we gain some level or degree of independence, and hopefully in a healthy way, independence continues. I think that a stage after independence would be autonomy, whereas it's not independence being against dependence, but it's about someone freely scripting their own lives. And from that from that place, you become interdependent because you realize that you're a social creature and part of an ancestry that goes back to the beginning of humankind and hopefully for our sake as a species, way, way deep into the future. Those are just my thoughts on, on type of development and such. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on human connection and creating a healthy sense of self and if you think what I said has any meaning to your um, perspectives and the way you think about uh, life, especially in light of the Kundalini model that you espouse and have studied for 50-some years now. Well, it's a beautiful question, Michael. And um, my first uh, response is to say that um, to get a grip on what it means when I say everything must change. Everything must change. And, and so when we even say the word uterus, that we are conceived in a uterus and we're born, uh, or we develop um, in a dependency in the womb, and then we're a little baby and we're dependent on our parents and we become individuals, all, all these terms have to be changed that are what you mentioned and ones that are implied. That what we mean by a, a womb has to change. In other what we mean by a, a baby has to change. What we mean by conception has to change. Uh, in other words, we're, what I was able to do in, in my career that many have done is to see what are the who is the prevailing power structure, who is the prevailing authority, and how and what have they been teaching? And we've, we've lived in a time of, of, of science where we think scientifically about a uterus. And, and these basic uh, building blocks of, of an, what an infant is and a teenager. And uh, at the same time, I've watched, we've all watched, the re-inclusion of spirituality, which has always been a little bit different than science. They were able to, they were trying to make claims that could not quite be tested. So for us to actually talk about a whole culture change, yeah, we have to change. What we, where are we going to get the energy and power to make this change? It's going to be by a deeper grasp, for example, of what the womb is. So, and that's where Sanskrit terminology helps. 
And I'll just give you a little taste, and then I'll ask Tina to uh, add what she has to say. In uh, the Sanskrit literature on Kundalini, the human mind is, under, is named by the same word as the womb. The mind is considered a yoni, where ideas and feelings, uh, hopes and longings are born. But then also the womb of the woman's body is directly connected to the realm of souls in becoming incarnated. So, and uh, soon we'll run up against the views of Western religion about how do these souls come in and how are we supposed to be. And then we have a trouble because uh, Freudian psychology scientized sexuality so that uh, uh, we could only go as far as the genital puberty. And this full embodiment that we're talking about goes far beyond a genital puberty. And I'll, now I'm really getting in trouble because there isn't even a plural for the word puberty in the English language. And yet the Sanskrit language and their, uh, in the Kundalini model of human development names many puberties that the human body goes through. So how can we take a step, except the first step to be reckoning with how massive, how fundamental everything must change for this new culture to really, you know, blossom fully? Tina, what would you say? <laughs> well, one of the things I so deeply love and appreciate about my dear friend Stuart here is his relentless unwillingness to allow things to be simply as they appear and his uh, fierce insistence on opening the mystery at every possible turn. So what I, what I would say is that what he's offering here is even words like dependent, independent, autonomous uh, become meaningless, really, when we are trying to comprehend what this mystery of existence is and what is it, really. Those words, when we, whenever we attempt to put a word around a mystery, we've begun to close the mystery. So on one level, yes, I could say that uh, we are born in the womb and we are then babies who are dependent on our parents and then we grow further out into independence and autonomy and then we return to a sense of independence. But what does that actually mean? What, what does it mean to be incarnated in the first place? What does it mean to come into existence and where did we come from? And what does that mean exactly? And, you know, in the same way that Stuart seeks to open the mystery rather than close it down, I too am interested in expanding the possibility of what it is we're talking about because every time we close it down, we separate ourselves from something that is so vast and so infinite. We can't comprehend it. 
And the not being able to comprehend an infinite mystery is a tension that I think one learns to become more comfortable in as time goes on, um, rather than to close the mystery down. So that would be my attempt at a response. Um, you can you can begin to feel how language itself, and Stuart's right that Sanskrit language has the the, the mana of mystery embedded in it, unlike much of the English language, um, which which tends to be more scientific and closed down. So, over to you, Michael. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it, it's funny because I'm listening to both of you and I'm thinking how American and agenic I am in my approach, despite my many years of, of studying with Stuart <laughs> and studying his work. Um, but I, I have a, it leads me to a question, listening to the both of you in terms of being open to the mystery and not shutting it down, the use of language and kind of the Western scientific um, method. Um, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to shut it down, and I want you guys to blast it open for me. And um, without making distinctions and, and categories, um, is, is it not challenging then to, to just figure out what is healthy, what is not healthy in terms of uh, human health, human, in terms of human relationships. Like, how, how do you not make distinctions and create categories, um, remaining open to the mystery, and still live in a, you know, as we're talking about creating a culture of connection? Right. We, you know, the, the best feature, I think, of empiricism or science is that they ask us to really look at the results on a large scale. Uh, and, and see what, what the effect is. So, for example, uh, but, but also the historians say to us, uh, sometimes we have to look in different eras than our own to see uh, e examples of ideal cultures. Uh, and so together, I can those two concepts, looking, yeah, we need categories we need to evaluate. We don't, we're not just winging it and see what happens. We want to draw from things that have a track record. And uh, they may be uh, hidden in Sanskrit, uh, but that only people reading the text know, and also that they've attained uh, in their bodies so that they can translate the text properly, and then also historically look throughout history. And you see times for, you know, where there was high health uh, and, and different modalities. For example, uh, even if it's a very difficult situation in India, uh, the divorce rate is less than 2%. Uh, in many cultures, uh, lifelong love is the rule of the land. Children grow up in secure families instead of in America where the 50% divorce rate, you know, shakes more than we would like, most people would like to uh, uh, believe in, uh, that it shakes the developmental process, the so-called becoming more independent. Um, and if you, and so how do you create lifelong love? How do you create a, a culture where there's only one or two percent divorce uh, rate? And then even the Navajo culture, uh, I think it's a four percent divorce rate, and, and both and that culture has been de decimated, but not at this level of a kind of a dedicated lifelong love. Well, we start to see that, um, and this is where science kind of does can come back in. 
uh, we see it in the tests of, of meditation in laboratories, that even in uh, laboratory results, meditation keeps proving itself as very healthy, healthy to do nothing with your mind. That's not what I was taught in the 50s, that spending time following your breath was anything but wasting time. So it was a huge change from the 50s to the 70s, 80s, 90s until now. Uh, meditation makes the New York Times cover uh, as empirically beneficial to, to all of us. Doing nothing has become big scientific discovery as being healthy. And that's just the beginning. If we were able to sample the, the hormone levels in human bodies, of yogis who've attained this maturity that I'm talking about, kundalini maturity, my guess would be that the hormone levels would be off the charts. Oxytocin, the so-called love molecule, love hormone, would be off the charts. Serotonin, which is related to high uh, states of consciousness, would be way off the charts. So I believe that science will corroborate what I'm saying, but we'll have to, uh, uh, you know, and science is broadening itself. So I, I would say, yeah, uh, we don't have to go forward winging it and with the sense of we're just uh, faith healers. No, the categories will verify themselves of how lifelong love, a body capable of lifelong love, a mind, emotionality that forgives and moves on and learns and grows rather than throwing in the towel, and how kids grow up. And they, uh, yeah, their individuality and those kind of families is embedded in a family. So with the independent interdependence that Michael talks about, uh, it, it, it naturally blossoms. What do you think, Tina? Well, first of all, Michael, I loved the question, you know, how do we without uh, narrow de definitions define health and well-being and uh one of the things that I was contemplating as Stuart was talking is the very approach toward life, toward love, toward relationships that comes from a sense of mystery and awe and wonder and rapture is itself, I believe, the path that leads to health. When you look at the indigenous cultures around the world, one of the common threads throughout all of them is that they have retained a sense of connection to the mystery. They have re retained a sense of connection to the earth and the natural rhythms of the earth. And in those cultures that have been, you know, at, when they have remained untouched by the Western world, um, there's virtually no divorce, there's no uh, suicidality, there's no drug addiction, there's no any of the things that plague the, the rest of the Western world. And I think that the, the very approach that Stuart for sure is alluding to, this sense of holding life as an infinite and unfolding mystery, when we bring that attitude to our intimate relationships, those relationships tend to be healthy. When we bring that attitude of reverence and awe and wonder and rapture to our communities, that tends to build and create and nourish and sustain healthy communities. When we bring that to our parenting, to our coworkers, to whatever it is that we are endeavoring to do, 
when we bring a sense of reverence and awe and mystery, which is what gets cultivated, by the way, in the states of meditation that Stuart's alluding to, when you quiet the mind long enough and you allow empty space, what arises in the empty space is infinite sense of wonder, wonderment at this mystery that we are involved in. And from there, one is kinder to one's community, one lover, one's lover, one's friends, one's coworkers. There is an innate arising of the reality of our interconnectedness and our interdependentness. And um, so I think that the, the attitude of wonder and mystery is part of the answer to your question, Michael. Well, actually, Tina, I would like to ask you a, a follow-up question based on what you just said and what um, Stuart also talked about, too. And I've not been to India. And I know both of you have done multiple trips to India. And I know the culture well, and so you talk about the 2% divorce rate. Um, but Tina, I'm wondering, uh, for you as a modern woman, how do you reconcile, if it even needs to be reconciled, a very conventional approach to marriage, um, maybe even a pre-modern approach to marriage, um, that has a low divorce rate in some of these cultures, but, the, but women would seemingly have an old pre-modern role and rules to follow, uh, not free as they are in the West, especially in America, to pursue a multitude of interests. Um, that might not be true, so I might be mischaracterizing some of these older cultures, but that's just my understanding of some of these more traditional cultures. So you know, it's one thing to have awe, reverence, and openness to the mystery, but if, a, if, if one half of the partnership in terms of a marriage is locked into these very traditional roles, are they really free to explore the awe and the openness and the reverence and the mystery? Does that make sense? Well, I'm not entirely sure how to answer that question. You know, if we look at India, for example, um, there are there's the there's the embedded in the culture is you can't you can't act in my experience at least you can't separate the mystery from the marriage. It's so embedded in every part of the culture that um, while you might be referring to traditional uh, husband-wife roles within the culture, at least my experience has been that within that, within those structures, uh, there is an attitude of devotion to each other. And there is an attitude of com- community reverence and that the marriage is in many, in this way, I think it's actually an enhancement to what the Western version of it is. The marriage is seen as a part of the community and as a part of serving the community and the extended family in a way that's very different here. You know, we here in the West, the marriage is an isolated thing often cut off from the parents and grandparents. And my experience of the way that marriage is embedded into the culture, at least in the Indian community, is that there, there there's a sense of shared belonging, belonging to each other as a couple, belonging to the generations that came before and come after. 
and a sense of com- service to the community. I'm not sure if that answers your question, Michael. Does, does that answer your, does that address uh, well, your question? It partially, but I'm also curious too, because, you know, uh, and I'm characterizing you and most women I know as modern women who like the option. You know, you might, not you personally, but some women might choose traditional roles, but at least in our culture, for the most part, you're free to, you know, have a multitude of roles, you know, in the workspace, as a mother at home, you know, all, all kinds of different roles are possible. Um, so there's a lot of freedom there. And I'm wondering these, some of these more traditional cultures is, maybe freedom is not really, the freedom that I'm referring to is very American or Western and hygienic. So maybe that freedom is not as important in the systems that you guys are talking about and what you guys are promoting, but it seems to me that both the freedom to choose and then also to be so well connected that you choose well, um, it is important because if you're just, if you're, if you don't have the freedom to choose and you're kind of locked into a very conventional system, it just seems like you're just playing out roles. And I, and I, like I said, I could be mischaracterizing it. I'm not entirely sure how to respond to that. Um, it feels a little bit like, you know, if you don't, if you don't have the many, 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 many words for snow that you have, you know, in the North Pole, you can't, a conversation can get lost because there's not enough adequate language. So on the one hand, I think that, uh, the roles of women are changing in India. Um, modernity is, definitely uh reached its shores and and yet i don't know that that even within that that the notion of freedom the way that we interpret it and the way that i as a western what you're calling modern woman might mean by that may not even be relevant within the culture in the same way um and what they would have there that we perhaps might not have is a sense of uh, community and belonging to the community that we think is antithesis of freedom, but may in fact not be. That there may be a different kind of freedom meant by being of service to one's family and one's partner and one's community and one's parents and grandparents in a way that we can't fathom because of what we mean by the word freedom here. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Stuart, you got any thoughts on this? I think if we broaden, <clears throat> I mean, at first I would say something very immediate because I don't, you know, I've been speaking in big overarching terms. <clears throat> Most immediate thing I could bring to, the, to what we're now talking about is how many minutes do couples and families spend in a day putting their love and gratitude and admiration into words with one another. It's the most immediate choice we have before us, particularly like an example like right now. I can say right now, instead of just answering the question, I can say to Tina, you're amazing. You're an amazing human being. I've known you for about uh, less than 10 years, and all, and all you do is make things happen. If you get an idea, you uh, help it blossom. Now, can you feel the difference that I just made of changing the topic of conversation to admiration? I could have told you about uh, 2,000 years ago in India where there was uh, an ideal tantric culture, 
and they were in the life blood, the flow of energy was so high that the caste system broke down, and that no longer took, they had an era of about six, seven hundred years, and then it kind of went away. Or I could then, instead, I could now I can show you again, but with Michael. Michael, you blow me away. I've known you for how long? 20 years? Uh, 95, 96? Yeah, like 20 years, <laughs> and we're still in touch. You're doing amazing things. You were a graduate student. How could I predict that you would end up in Washington uh, as a trans-partisan consultant to all kinds of political people? You, you blow me away. What you've done with your life, I can hardly fathom. You're, you inspire me. Once again, I think you can feel... It's not just a demo. I I really mean everything I said, but you can feel how capable, how how available we are at the most immediate level. Forget about big puberties and overarching change. In the very moment that we live, we have a choice of how deeply to be loving and appreciative of each other, and it hardly ever happens. I've been in many meetings with wonderful people for years on boards, and they just say, thank you for coming and then they get to business. They don't go on in great detail thanking each person around the table for what they did with their lives. The gratitude and the love is constantly uh, shut off to the side in order to get down to so-called business. This is the crux of one of the the close, intimate level of this problem, is the the odd sidestepping in therapies and marriages and families and, of course, everyone is starving for what I just uh, shared with each of you. And once you taste it, you want more. But then the yep. dedication <laughs> to, to doing it more, nobody does it. You know, we've been told, love one another. And that you can lead the horse to the water. So it's a deep challenge to uh, uh, keep very much alive, which I've done for 40, 40 years. It's all I did in prisons and mental hospitals, on suicide hotlines, in projects with the Dalai Lama in South Africa with uh, post-apartheid projects and post-communist Moscow helping create yoga programs and uh, for the first time ever. All kinds of arenas is to awaken us first to the most immediate choice. Do we put something, at least from time to time, put some of our love and appreciation and admiration into words, or do we jump into business? I say things go a lot better afterwards when you do get into business topics or whatever if you really replenish the feelings of each other with the love. That's number one. At the big overarching level is, yeah, India has lost touch for colonialistic reasons for seven, eight hundred years of invasions and so on with their tantric lifeblood. And in those older eras, women were worshipped everywhere, every way possible. They're touched to the forehead. You still see Indian women. They have a dot on their forehead. We don't have that kind of cosmetic for women. Women have lipstick, but they don't have a dot on the middle of their forehead. Why not? Hmm. Because not only is, you know, they have a different body. The roles uh, can't change too much, father, mother, uh, husband, wife. But the body that they live in, perfect example, the woman has a dot on her forehead. Why? It's hard to 
not you will never find an Indian woman who do, who doesn't at least from time to time put the dot on her forehead, or the man will put a streak on his forehead. Why? It's because the pineal gland would be a scientific way of talking about it is behind that dot. That is looked at as an erotic area of the body. As I said, the Indian mind has named itself as a yoni, but a different kind of a yoni than the yoni that is on sexuality vocabularies or pornography, millions, billions, trillions of hits, websites, or Freudian psychology and hype and, and taught in graduate schools everywhere. This mind that is fertile, that's filled with life, that would make you cry if you touched the forehead of another of a woman where she has this dot, this so-called cosmetic dot on her forehead. There was a time when this, roughly from 150 to 700 A.D., this stuff was widely alive in certain parts of India, gave rise to the whole, what we now call uh, modern yoga. This was in its uh, older Indian pure form that was highly energized. So I hope I'm beginning to show you, at the most immediate level, we don't even pick up admiration very often and, and put you know wonderful compliments into words. And then in the bigger picture, something is a bit lost from modern Indian culture. They have the roles, they have the loyalty, they have the dedication. But it's a different topic of how colonialism kind of blasted it all apart. Missionaries, lots of different ways that their indigenous spirituality, which was an erotic spirituality, but not erotic in the way that moderns think about it, but very erotic at a sensate level. Like I say, they have a dot on their forehead, but it's, it's like a vagina on your forehead, but it's a holy vagina. And you can touch that vagina in public, and nobody is going to think anything of it, except it's a, a respectful but energetic uh, a connection that happens then. And so when you bring all the pieces of this puzzle together, uh, Indian culture deserves to blossom with its own energies that it's been cut off from. It's been uh, kind of exported in a big way to the rest of the world through the yoga movement, and but only less than two, three, four, five percent of the Sanskrit texts are in English. So we're just barely beginning. When you get all these pieces together, yeah, you get a type of freedom and uh, erotic enjoyment that any man or woman would uh, love to have. The capacity of lovemaking for hours, the average is like three minutes. And we're talking about a totally different male and female <clears throat> bodily maturity, we're talking about high levels of, of, of feeling, this mystery that is endless instead of a puberty that ends at 13. It was so ending that uh, it trapped Bill Clinton, the President of the United States, so that his puberty trapped him with the poor Monica Lewinsky. They were trapped in this model. That's how it happened, in my opinion. And you open up this expanse, and then all the leaders, all the people of the world, they can grow and grow and grow with each other way beyond that simple uh, end point that Freud uh, said was the, you know, the culmination of human development. So you start feeling everything changes. This freedom, uh, modern women, I hope they have it. I doubt it. They're, they're part of the Freudian world. I, I listen in. Uh, the Indian world, they used to have it, and they, uh, we can all have it. 
Wow. (laughs) Let me just say in the spirit of admiration, Stuart, one of the things I so love about you is you can take anything and turn it into a portal for the infinite. And it just keeps expanding the conversation. You can feel, Michael, that this this is a drop in an infinite ocean, what we've just started to open up here. And to you, Michael, also, I would say, you know, I admire your work in the world and your commitment to these uh, broadcasts is enhancing what's available in our community here in the West. uh, Tina, thank you very much. And actually, Stuart, thank you very much as well. Um, First, to Stuart, Stuart, I was really moved by your comments about my work, and it's uh, greatly appreciated, and I've always enjoyed our um, conversations, and I'm glad we've stayed connected since our time, or my time, in graduate school. And uh, I think it was through you, Stuart, I met Tina, or is it through Gail? Hmm. I think it was a a confluence of both, both? actually. Okay. Well, thank you, Stuart and Gail, (laughs) um, for introducing me to you, Tina. and I've really enjoyed these kind of conversations. And maybe I'll, I'll um, ask one last question, and then we can see where it goes, and we can kind of wind it down and hopefully be open to another trilogue of, like you said, Tina, we could just kind of just touch the, you didn't use the surface analogy, but, you know, a drop in the ocean. Um, I'm, I'm struck, Stuart, um, when you talked about opening a business meeting as an example of, of in doing it so in, in a way of, of gratitude and thankfulness of being around these other people. Um, I want, for, this question is for you, Tina, to start with. It, it seems to me that our culture is organized against that. You know, it's very speedy. There's really no time to sit and be with another person, let alone be with a multitude of people. Um, what would, Tina, what would you recommend we do differently in order to allow the space for these kind of connections and these dances of intimacy to occur. Well, I think Stuart was just uh, demonstrating exactly what I would uh, agree with, that um, in every way possible, and I can just speak for myself, um, I aspire to express actively through my words, through my body language, through my presence, through my being, my profound and deep gratitude for the people around me, whether that's uh, I get home from work and I express to my daughter how much gratitude I have for that she came home and started to work on her homework, Uh, or I'm talking to Stuart and we're collaborating together as we are currently on a nine-month Bhakti Tantra Immersion Group, uh, you know, that I express my gratitude to him ongoingly for what he brings and what he offers. And uh, to my clients, I don't know how many therapists actually say to their clients that they're grateful for the opportunity to bear witness to their lives. But I express that every day. I tell my clients that I am grateful for the privilege to sit with them and to bear witness to their lives and their stories. Uh, so, I, you know, in, in, on Facebook, where all of us are connected, you know, right. people make comments on my post. And I make a practice of saying to everybody who comments on my post, thank you for your comment. 
because it matters to me to actively be an expression of gratitude. And uh, I think that does change the world that we live in. It changes our interrelatedness and our interconnectedness in a way that's profoundly meaningful. Um, that's what I would say to that. Fantastic. Um, Tina, you mentioned the, the project, the nine-month project you're working with Stuart. Is it mature enough to say more about it, or you could talk openly about it, or is it something you might want to come back you guys and talk more about? Well, I can say something, and Stuart, I'd love for you to comment too, but we collaborated last year on a day-long exploration into Tantra and Bhakti. And again, we be, you know, at the end of a one-day experience with a group of people, it was just barely scratching the surface. And so out of that, we were compelled to offer a nine-month deeper immersion. So we've got a group of people we've started already, and we meet once a month. And we are in the exploration together of the seed mysteries and what does that mean and what is Tantra and what is devotion and what is Bhakti. And like Stuart has alluded to and writes about extensively in his book, um, that these words, they've been taken out of the thousands of years of practices in India and turned into yogic postures in the West, but they've lost the depth of the meaning behind them. And so what we're, what we're attempting to do in this nine-month group is to reinvigorate these words with the deeper, the deeper roots of their meaning so that yoga isn't a posture. Yoga is a world, an attitude, uh, an, an experience of reverence and unfolding and unfolding and unfolding that has no end, which is very different than teaching a yogic posture. So that's kind of what we're doing. What would you add to that, Stuart? Yeah, the close-up level, we're, we're trying to help people with their that their lives will be enriched. And some of it is as simple as, uh, uh, every time we meet, spending a, 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 in groups and dyads, uh, 10, 20 minutes uh, admiring each other uh, and telling stories of, of, that we're proud of from our lives and being admired and going back and forth in great detail beyond what the ordinary uh, life will allow us. So that you go, wow, yeah, we actually try to practice that up close, uh, uh, back and forth of gratitude and admiration. Uh, and then in the overarching way, I sometimes think uh, we're helping the children and the grandchildren, really, of our, of our uh, adult immersion group. That, uh, it, it, it took a uh, hundred years for Freud to get his theories out, uh, that i you can see some of their limitations. It's gonna take maybe a few trillion dollars, <laughs> one tenth, one hundredth of what has been spent to create the current modern world that we have. But to uh, to take it even further, yeah, we're helping our uh, immersion group that what they pass on to their children as the goodness of marriage, as the uh, goodness of being a, a male child, a female child, a gay child, uh, a child whose gender doesn't even have an English name for it. We want to enrich uh, all the categories, really, of identity that, uh, so that what's passed on to the next generation 
will uh, be um, much more lively and creative than what was passed on to us. So we're doing an immersion, uh, four hours at a time, of trying to live in this enriched conversation with each other in practices, touching the forehead of each other uh, over nine months. First time it's a little, you know, just quirky. But uh, after nine months of, of touching the forehead of each other, the mystery of the forehead uh, can open up and people cry. It's not the forehead. It's a mystery of the creativity of the human soul. And touching that forehead is like opening up, I think of like in, in Judaism, how I felt when they first opened up the, the Torah and showed the ark. And I was 13. I was, I'd never seen it. I was just glowing with light. To think of the forehead is like the holy of holies. Wow. Uh, and it being for real, we want to immerse people so that eight, six, seven, eight, nine months of immersion, this all will be very real to them to pass on to their kids and for their kids to pass on to their kids. That sounds awesome, you guys. Now, for people listening in who are interested to learn more about each of your works, uh, Tina, where can they find more about your work and as well as your book? Uh, well, they can go to my website, which is www.soulwhisperer.com, and uh, they'll find everything about my book and me there. Great. And how about you, Stuart? Uh, the quickest thing I can say is uh, get a hold of Advanced Spiritual Intimacy off of uh, Amazon.com and stay in touch with me on Facebook as you read it. Fantastic. Well, thank you, guys. Really enjoyed our hopefully first of many trialogues, and I would like to invite both of you back to continue this conversation. Thank you so much, Michael.